cat likes my earwax. Like, she will specifically go after Q-tips that I've already used. Cats are so weird. Yeah. Cats are also super into olives. Really? Yeah, so like, one of my cats will kind of get a little bit into catnip, and the other one's like, I don't even care about that. But I was sitting eating olives one day, and she came over, and I had like a napkin that I'd wipe my fingers on, and she flipped out over the napkin and was like rubbing herself all over the napkin, and of course, just kind of acting like a crazy animal. I was like, what is your deal? Regularly caffeinated? I've only caffeinated and I've only talked to children so far today, so. <laughs> this will be good. This is gonna be good. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode three of season two of So Poetry. Um, I'm sitting with two very dear friends um, that are book arts uh, masters, mavens. I don't know what the correct, <laughs> the correct people. term. Yes, We're book arts people. Ginny um, O'Grady and Meredith Purvis. Um, if you want to introduce yourselves, talk a little bit about each other. I don't know. We should introduce each other. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. Meredith Purvis is a book arts maven, as Michael said, and she was my student at the University of Baltimore, and she makes really beautiful books. Sometimes she, mm -hmm. sometimes she um, uh, puts flowers in there, and they're all re they all smell great, and they're they they're, they're really <laughs> finely done. And she also studied in some somewhere in New York. Oh yeah. She's it's, nodding, but I can't remember this, the name the, of it. The nodding isn't picked up by the microphone. The no. Center for Book Arts. Right, and uh, she really upped her game when she did that, and so whenever I think I need a really fine, fine book, I would go to Meredith. Is is that that's where we did the the stamping for the florology, right? It is. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and this is Jenny O'Grady, and she is the original book arts <laughs> Um As she said, she was my teacher at the University of Baltimore. And that is how, well, that is one of the ways we met. We met in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. I won't digress that far. Um, but yeah, she, we no. had such a, we had a meet cute kind we of. We did have a meet cute. <laughs> Do you, you want to tell it? You have to talk about it now. Okay, okay. So when I decided to come to Baltimore for graduate school, which is why I decided to come to Baltimore, I submitted some work to the Little Patuxent Review. So shout out to LPR. Woo! Um, and I went to the reading for that when I got here. And who should be there but Jenny O'Grady. We both had poems in that book. We both were they, had poems. Were they next to each other? I don't know. I don't remember if they were next to each other, but we both read at the reading. Right, and I remember seeing, I, I didn't really know people in the audience, but I remember seeing that when Meredith went up to read her book, or read her poem, she had her poem in what was obviously a handmade book. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna introduce myself. And then, history. And, it, and then here we are, almost 10 years later. Yep. <laughs> so, um, let's see. Okay, so about Jenny's books. Jenny makes incredible sculptural books that really push the boundaries of what a book is. And that's one of my most favorite things about Aww. her. Because you never know. It's always a surprise what the next one will be. They've been a series of dolls that all operate in different ways. Mm -hmm. There's been the infamous... Um, horseshoe, horseshoe crab? Horseshoe crab, yeah. That is now in special collections at Goucher. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Jenny does incredible, incredible stuff. Aw, thank you. You did the um the tin drum skirt doll, yes. right? Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. That was three book doll. Such I have trouble describing one. Nope. <laughs> What it, what it they was are. a trilogy. It was a trilogy, right? Mm-hmm. My book, my trilogy of characters from the Tin Drum the, generations. The other really cool thing about Jenny is that I feel like she specializes in using materials that you wouldn't think are mm. the kinds of things you might typically use. Mm-hmm. So right. shrinky dinks and oh, yeah. shrinky dink. What do you call that stuff? Sculpey. Sculpey. Shrinky mm-hmm. dink. I use a lot of paper bags. Mm-hmm. And you order Tyvek. To I've make... had some Tyvek in yeah. there. Yep. What is Tyvek? That's the what they make envelopes out of. Like it, some of those envelopes, or they use it when their roofers use it on roofs. Oh, okay. And kite people use it. It's kind know. of like paper except coated. So oh, like, like if you think about the, the USPS envelopes that are made to kind of withstand if they were yeah. get wet mm-hmm. or whatever that are they're hard to tear and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's Tyvek. Wow. It's pretty cool stuff. It's very good if you want to cut a really elaborate shape into something and not have it tear. Mm-hmm. Wow. So if um, people listening detect a thread <laughs> or a theme of University of Baltimore people um, <laughs> as guests, um, that is kind of intentional. Um, I've been trying to keep the podcast, like the guests, relatively local. And the vast majority of people that I know in the the literary arts community have come from University of Baltimore. Um, but this this I guess like panel is um, really unique and I think special specifically to the University of Baltimore because in the MFA um, program every student has to take a bookmaking class, whether they want to or not. Right. Yeah. Some under <laughs> some under protest. Um, but it's like every student, uh, typically it's in the structure for like the end of the second year, right? Typically. It is, but I, I actually have, I have bad news for you. Oh. You're, you'll have to go. I don't, you may want to. I'm going to hide. You may want to edit it. They changed the prereq. Really? Uh-huh. So not, not everybody's taking it? Nope. Oh, wow. Oh, but, man. So the good news about that, right? Like for a long time, like <laughs> I know I stood behind that and really mm-hmm. felt like because I truly believe that when you are an artist of any ilk, it's good to learn other arts. So if you're a writer, totally. do photography, do painting, do mm-hmm. whatever, because it gives you multiple creative outlets, and if you're jammed up on one, you can turn to another. Right. And I feel like book arts is the same way, and I feel like as writers, it's good to understand and appreciate the book as an object and to understand what that can do to help tell your story. Be that and, a poem, and even to fail story. sometimes. Or, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But they did. They changed the prerequisite. And the good news about that is that um, I think what's really exciting is that the people who started to be in that class were really excited about it. And so mm. you saw the level of interest mm-hmm. and sort of engagement go up, which was great. Um, but it is no longer true that everybody has to take but, it. But everyone still has to take the typography class. Yes, because you still need to learn the fundamentals of design. No okay. matter how, what you do when you get to the end, you'll either design your book yeah. or you'll hand make it and still need to know how to use and design mm-hmm. and, get those basic mm-hmm. principles. Well, that, for me, I mean, I don't know if it was the same with you or with you. Um, Back in the dark ages when yeah. I was a student. Um, but that was, like, the, the publishing arts aspect of the University of Baltimore's MFA program was, I, like, the biggest draw for me. That was, I mean, of the the um, the programs that I applied to, that was the only one that had that element of, like, mm-hmm. publishing mm-hmm. arts. 
um, or publication arts, whatever it is. And I didn't, at the time, I didn't really know what it was, but I knew that it felt different. Um, and I still think that we're, we might be one of the few programs, I haven't done research this in, in a while, but it feels like it, we're one of the few programs that actually you have like a completed book by the time that you graduate instead mm -hmm. of just like the thesis that you can, you can shop around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, wow. I know. There are, I mean, it tends to be out in the world of programs, like you'll either see writing programs or you'll see some kind of fine arts program that right. offers a book arts component. Right. So I think yeah. you're right in mm -hmm. that. I, I mean, I haven't done re recent research to back myself up on that, but I will add to like, that's absolutely why I chose the University of Baltimore. I remember when the URL was like raven.ubalt.edu <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> Seriously, that's what it was. And I, they had pictures of people's books on there and that's, that was the deciding factor between this and where I had gone to undergrad was that that was something I knew I wanted to do. Like mm -hmm. I learned how to make chapbooks in undergrad, which are super simple. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I was like, that's... Or can, can be. I've seen some elaborate. Well, yes, oh, that's sure. true. But the most, in their most basic form, it's an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper folded in half. So... And pamphlet stitched. And pamphlet mm -hmm. stitched. Yeah. So very simple. But I thought, oh yeah, that I want to do that. So <laughs> you, you were making books before you got... To Baltimore? Cha like, in the simplest, most pure form, just chapbooks. That's okay. it. The, mm -hmm. Literally printed out 8.5 by 11, folded. And I did sew them, but because I thought staples were ugly. Staples so. are ugly. Staples Sorry, are staples. ugly. <laughs> Unless they're meaningful. Yes. Did you, were you making books before the program? or? Yes. Okay. Yes, my whole family is very artsy and... Um, my mom paints and my sister weaves and my wow. dad um, had a workshop where he built muzzleloader rifles so we always had art and all the tools around us mm -hmm. and uh, I was thinking this morning in the shower about like what was my earliest book <laughs> and, it, and it did have a staple in it but it was I, w I think I was maybe six or seven and it was called Prince Philip and the and the Purple Horse and it was it was an unusual size and an unusual shape and I think, you know, when I came into the, when I came into the UB program, it was not yet the MFA. I came oh. in to the pub design program and they had just started talking about creating the MFA program. And I was, I was a journalist mm. and, um, but I, I sort of had this need in me to <laughs> try some other things. And, um, when I heard about the program, I stepped right into it and, um, like to think I was one of those people at the beginning who was sort of like, hey, we should do more of this um, book stuff because it, it really does, like, like Meredith was saying, um, it's one thing to just write, it's another to also draw or also do something else and you, you, you definitely write better after you do those things and um, the book arts can blow your mind. So. so you, who taught it when you were in the program? It really wasn't what it, 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 there was. Was Rebecca? No. Silvers? I wasn't there for her. Okay. I feel um, like, was she maybe the first person who taught it? Maybe. Um, I took literary publications my very first semester with someone whose name I can't remember. <laughs> but, and that, and that class was, um, that class was more of what the Welter class is now. Yeah. So in that oh, class, okay. we we created Welter, the 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 graduate school's um, 
literary magazine. Um, but we also made some books, but it, it wasn't a place where you would go in and say, okay, this week we're going to learn this tradition right. form, this traditional. It, it wasn't like that at all. Um, but I started experimenting there. And mm. by luck, my sister, who went to Micah, had been taking some book arts classes uh, there. Okay. And so, so I sort of started bringing them together. And, um, but later on, I took a class. I, I sat in on um, a class that was a little more traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, and that teacher was only there for a semester, I believe. But I, I just sat in. I didn't get a grade. So I, I, I think that actually the way it evolved, there wasn't a class like what we taught. Um, and after I graduated in 2006, Kendra came back to me and said, hey, maybe you could start doing some workshops. Uh, so I started teaching workshops on weekends mm-hmm. occasionally, and that all kind of turned into me taking over the literary publications class. Oh, and, that's why it was and, called and, and Lit Pub. Yeah, and uh, re-envisioning okay. it. Um, Mm-hmm. And into what I thought people would need in order to make their their editions of books after they graduated, mm-hmm. which we all know has also uh, changed a lot right. over time. But yeah. that's how it kind of started for me. Yeah. So um, I think this was in the last couple of years because I, I think when I started the program, it was still back in what 2011. It was still you handmade like a certain edition of them or something like that, and then you had like and that was like the handmade element mm. type of thing. And then it shifted more to a, um, you just, you have to do a handmade element for a certain amount of them. So, or something. No, I, I, Jenny could speak to what it was. I think a lot more people did the handmade book when you were in the program. Part of it was just because, um, at that time, it's hard to believe now, but at that time, one, Publishing on online lit mags was still oh right a, yeah a gross thing and that's completely flipped mm-hmm. and also at the time you didn't have all of these little oh, uh, the businesses yeah. where you could printers. print in any mm-hmm. kind of um, efficient or oh, cost so efficient it was way just, it was more more effective and more efficient to just do it yourself yeah yeah oh, I think okay. that's part of what happened is just the landscape of what was available Change. and then oh, I didn't I and then, never considered you know that. the same it's all perception, you know, um, yeah. because literally when I was a student, if you, you wouldn't even consider submitting to an online magazine. Right, now yeah. I'm, an, I'm the editor of an online <laughs> literary magazine and, and people think nothing of it. Yeah. Um, so it really has all shifted and, and the same goes wow. for uh, the perception of what it would mean to make a book versus sending one out to a place right. to print it. Um, it it's, it's changed so much. Yeah. Yeah, and when I was in the program, which was 07 to 10, we didn't, you could choose not to make your book by hand at all. The oh. handmade component mm-hmm. wasn't required for the thesis. Oh, you okay. could just print your books, which is what the vast majority, I actually Ended think I doing. did the, I was the only handmade book in yeah. my graduating class. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was the only one in mine, too. And some people would choose to do that. They would choose to mm-hmm. do some add-on element. Um, I think somebody in... If it wasn't my class, it was recent years, did, like, Cans of Moonshine. Like, it just... Yeah, Kelly Martin. Kelly, yeah. So, um, <laughs> people were bringing that in, but that wasn't a requirement. And okay. I, think, I think part of what happened, and of course, I'm speaking to this, not as the people who made the decision, so I don't really know, but I think a lot of it was just a desire to try to start to fold that back in and encourage a little bit mm-hmm. more of it. Gotcha. And I think you've started to see that through the program, too, because now I know... Um, 
at least one of the poetry classes, I start to hear from some of the students in those, oh, yeah, we made a book in that class. That was mm-hmm. what our final project was. And so by the time they even get to me, some of them have done it or they own one of the Alicia mm-hmm. Golden books or they, you know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I think it's getting a little bit more infused throughout the program and sort of a, a throwback to the original. I mean, that's great to hear because yeah. I think, you know, all along, like you said, uh, Michael, one of the, and both of you, what drew you to this is what makes the program very unique. Right, and so yeah. you want to be conscious of it and, and not lose it, but also willing to change with the desires and demands of... Yeah, and yeah. I definitely think that. I mean, I, within the last couple of years, like the last batch of like three or four graduating classes seem like they've definitely leaned pretty heavily on the like print, the sending it out somewhere and getting it mm-hmm. printed just because it's like easier and it's more like cost effective to get something at like a lower price point that then you could set your own price Mm -hmm. point lower but you know it's like there's so many readings and so many festivals and art things that like you can and i guess with the rise of like twitter and other social media things you can start developing a a readership or people that are interested in Mm -hmm. like um with like d watkins Mm -hmm. you know like blown up everywhere with followers and readings and just things that he's doing and you know right. it's like he now has like book deals and like a, a hardcore readership that's will buy anything that he puts out true um okay wow i didn't, well, I didn't... and i can't imagine you know a lot of i think the other part of making your final book versus not versus sending it out mm-hmm. is is just that there is so much more of an online interest that you know I made 20 books and I only have one of them left mm-hmm. for my, my thesis book. Yeah. I know where two of the others are. I have no idea what, who bought the other ones. And so I couldn't go around and right, yeah. sell them anymore. But someone who did that could potentially do a, dra- a direct reprint right, and yeah, you could be do, set yeah. within a week. Yeah. So. <clears throat> I yeah. have one copy left and it's broke. It's kind of a, it's a messed up copy. That's why I kept it. Sometimes I think I might... Oh, I have two of yours. <laughs> Jenny's, Jenny's a fan of mine. I did, yes. I have a very... I have, I'm have. also a stamp collector, and in the realm of stamp collecting, there are there's a uh, desire to get um, the... How do you say it? The, like... I don't know what's with the, with coins too, where yeah. there's like a misprint or there's something. There's a misprint like, or something oh. one side upside down. I mm-hmm. have what will certainly be a priceless <laughs> Meredith Purvis. A Purvis original. <laughs> on my shelf. I think part of it's upside down or something. Part of it is upside down. Yeah, I have one it's like awesome. that too. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay, so there are two of them. There's, well, I mean, but mine's like a mock-up copy. Yours oh yeah. Is one of the, yours was supposed to be <laughs> a finished. And right. it is precious to me. Book. Well, that, yeah, that's, I didn't really, didn't think about in the last, like, 10 years, and I guess when the guy was, I don't want to, uh, 2006, I was graduating high school. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I don't mean to, I don't want to date anybody. It's okay. Um, but, like, I wasn't. My date's <coughs> awesome. Yeah. Um. My, as is mine. <laughs> but I wasn't, like, at the time, I don't think I was even thinking about, um, like the literary scene and how that's changed because um, that's like I kind of um, oh what's the what's the phrase with your teeth you um, sharp, sharp whatever never mind cut your teeth yes thank oh, you yeah. um, I cut my teeth on 
like the literary scene as I was kind of graduating undergrad. And by that time, like uh, online things were beginning to be kind of like, yeah, it's not really novelty. And you, there's mm-hmm. um, like legitimate journals that are now doing almost exclusively online content. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole rise and fall of like the, the, like the small presses being gobbled up by the big presses, but now the big presses being pressured by Amazon so that makes all this space now for the small presses to kind of come back and fill those weird niches and <laughs> even just the the world of self-publishing yeah right the yeah perception of self-publishing is something i think that's huge whether you're publishing handbound versions of your work or you're you're digitally publishing your work i think that i mean i remember in undergrad people were like that is just that is not cool. That is the lowest of the low. You mm-hmm. should not self-publish yourself. That is vanity publishing. Right, She's yeah. She's making vanity. a face like, how I am gosh. making a yeah. face. How, how can you not see this face of the, the, <laughs> of the internet? Whatever we're on. Ew. Anyway, so it was it was really looked down upon, but I think that's also totally flipped and for a lot of the same reasons. Like, yes. It's a way for writers to get themselves out there and to be known, and, and I, I think that's become more accepted. And in fact, in some cases, I think there's pressure on writers to do a little bit of that before some people will take a risk on you. Like, right, yeah. You're unknown. Mm-hmm. It's what, more like old time in the, mo- in the music industry. I'm going to make this tape. I'm going to send it out to everyone right, yeah. I know. I'm going to go to shows. I'm going to try like you to have, You have people. a demo that you shop around. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely think that it's, like, part of the impetus of that is the, the shifting of, like, the, the PR is, feels like it's landing more on the side of the author than it is on the press or the mm-hmm. publisher is that you as an author you have to drum up a lot of support by yourself to get in which is doable now because of like Twitter yeah. and all these other things that you can you can gain a a following and I think that um and maybe like the rarer or the the not as common cases that a, like a publishing house will you know like move on somebody that they don't you know, it's like that weird space of not being completely unknown but also not having a huge Mm-hmm. like a huge audience that you've already at least worth a particular book that you've already mm-hmm. tapped but you know I imagine that the, the bigger the following that you have the more likely that you will get yeah picked well, yeah. up because it's like guaranteed that there's like something there right, you have yeah. analytics to show right, yeah. that you have people who are interested well, in and you for, for small presses too I mean we're talking about big presses you know but I think that for small presses having someone with a built-in following you know, a small press doesn't have a PR or marketing right. arm. Like they can't, they they can't necessarily invest in that in the way that a larger publishing house might be able to. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that is really key too. If you are somebody who who just wants to go the small press route, you know, you you have to do that. You you have to market yourself. So yeah. well, and it just reminds me. I, I taught another class at UB <laughs> that I almost forgot about, but electric. <laughs> it's oh, been yeah. so long ago, and it's changed. I mean, it changed a lot since then, but. It was called electronic publishing, mm. and on the one hand, we I tried to uh, show students uh, how they could use simple web tools to write particular types of things like Twitter fiction or this or that. But the big part of it, I thought, was let me show you how to make yourself a WordPress presence mm-hmm. or make, right. a, yeah. make an online presence. And we would look at the time. Now this was probably. 2008 even then there were many authors who did not have any online presence and at that point the ones who were really on it were pretty predictable they were thriller writers Mm -hmm. they were neil gaiman they were you know traditional genre writers who 
really engaged with their audiences and that was not yet happening in literary fiction right, at yeah. all. And so I got, a, I got kind of a mixed reaction from students, but like, okay, you're making me make myself a site, fine. Um, and there are a few who got it. Um, right, yeah. And now they're doing it, no doubt. <laughs> and I feel like it's, it's tough that that, and I've, I've been noticing this about myself, that that level of engagement um, seems to be, seems to come more naturally to some people than others. Like oh, I have, definitely. I have friends that, like they rock Twitter, and I have absolutely. I, I understand how Twitter is supposed to work, but I just I can't. I've never been able to utilize it the way that other people do, and it's like they they write something like um, Catherine, um, mm-hmm. like she would. It was a um, a co. I used to work at UMBC, um, and one of our coworkers, um, you know, had a huge following on Twitter, and when she would complain about like Dunkin' Donuts or something, like the head of the company or like somebody in the company would get back to her and yeah. you know try to like <laughs> you know smooth things over or because you know it's like if you if you have a big following and you throw bad press at somebody or at a company, you can do some damage to them because you have a level of like influence and a level of sway. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm ter- I realize that I am terrible at social media PR just I don't it's not it's not how I operate at all because it's a lot of like posting things and then posting it again and again and again and again and again <laughs> like I've been doing a, a GoFundMe and I like every couple of days I'll post it up I'll you know like put another link to it on Facebook and somebody like one person will donate maybe in the span of two weeks mm-hmm. um, and then I'll catch somebody else because you know it's like there's so much happening now that a lot of things like oh I'll, I'll get to that and then you forget about it and then other things like cycle into your mind and then that gets pushed out by the next round of stuff but and that is why here's a great segue i like the tangible yes aspect of book arts mm-hmm. that, that was an excellent segue. thank you well so, done. thank you so that leads me to my, my first <laughs> thing uh so people who listen know that i send out questions beforehand of just like stuff to think about um and i have varying success of sticking to actually asking people questions because if the conversation's <laughs> just kind of going, I'd rather just let mm-hmm. the conversation go. But since Ginny made the segue, um, <laughs> for the two of you, why book arts? Like, why is this something that you have decided to dedicate significant amounts of your time to? I will go first. <laughs> Meredith's going to go first. Um, when there's two people here, you, do, you have to have a moment where you decide who's going to We were just looking at each other, <laughs> so, um, speaking with our eyes. So, I think for me, I don't, I don't know if I've really ever made a, a totally conscious decision that I'm going to go ahead and do this thing now. Um, but I mean, you know, I've loved books for my entire life. Voracious reader as a kid. Um, love the book as an object. Uh, would have told you in the early days of... Kindle and such things. That was just an abomination. I've since changed my position uh, on that. I think they have their use. But do you, you have know, do you have an e-reader? Uh, I have an iPad with the Kindle app on it. But I still buy books hardback. I buy them there. It's just kind of what works. Mm-hmm. Um, it has its value, and I will extol that at a later date. But I. <laughs> I think for me, so much of it was just when I got into the program, and I actually took one of Jenny's workshops before I even took the class, I really, I just really like the notion of making my very own book, and 
my books tend to be more fine-bound traditional books, I think in part because I've always found it, and I talk with my students about this quite openly. Like, I'm not a great painter or drawer of things. and I You make d- a damn fine book. You do. I, thank you. It's like, it's serious. Thank you. Serious but I book. think that's because I, I work within the confines of a form, just like some people might write sonnets. Mm-hmm. And I know that form really, really well, and I can do that part in my sleep. And so then when you get into that, it's about how do you shift it this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... I just, there's something about holding them and seeing the way people react to them. It's very interesting to me. People, if you give one to someone as a gift, they're like, I don't, I will put this on my shelf, but I'm not going to use it. Which makes me really sad because that's their entire purpose for being. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I also just think that it's of the, of the various art forms, and I've tried a lot of them. I've tried painting and drawing and photography and um, never was good at music. And this one just feels right and you I'll get into it and I get into that zen space where mm-hmm. I don't even realize hours have passed yep. um, and it and it just it makes me happy so I guess that perhaps hmm. if there's a really core self-serving reason it's that it makes me happy to do it <laughs> is it the paper is it the sewing is it the cutting what I love it all I'm a little bit of a perfectionist something that also drives my students crazy because they much prefer not to measure things and they don't want to talk about fractions of an inch um, and I never measured anything. My students hated that too. So it, there's you, no you winning. You can't win. There's you no can't winning. Win. But you and it's weird that like you can, but you can pull off like not measuring stuff and it it working out. Like I'm just eyeballing it. I, I feel like I'm I'm in a weird space where I I very rarely cut paper. I typically fold and tear because it's mm-hmm. it's easier for me to do. But I have on my cutting mats. Like if I'm doing. If I had to get all of my pages down to a particular size, like I will use the the, the yeah the grid to get it. You know, it's like never anything smaller than maybe an eighth of an inch of a, of a distance, just because like I can't. It's difficult to see that. Yeah, I cut it off at about a sixteenth. But you know, I I, <laughs> I love the paper. I and I mean, I have a giant wall of paper in my home um, <laughs> because I can't stop buying it. Uh, you have an actual paper. I actually up, have up, uh, my husband. I know he made me a. A paper hanger. Oh, well, like the little like. Oh, that's so awesome! Cool. It's very cool. It makes me feel very fancy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do you ever just like walk underneath it and twirl around? And... <laughs> it's, it's like a waterfall. It's you know, I just sit and stare at it sometimes. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, and I, I also just really like the song, and I think the thing I've sort of classically said too is, I like the engineering of it. So mm-hmm. when when you decide you want to push something or move mm-hmm. outside a little bit, or you want to make a book that's a triangle, or you want to. Have, it, like a, have a pop-up. I like the thinking, which is so funny because I hated math as a child. But book <laughs> math is the only math that makes sense to me. And I, I really like... That's the take away from this. <laughs> it's book the math. best. Book slide. math. No, so it's it's the engineering of it and figuring out how the pieces are going to work together to create a whole. Yeah. So that's my answer to that question. What about Very you, long. Jenny? Yeah, I, there's a lot in what Meredith just said that applies to me too. And um, I think that I would have continued to make kind of traditional shapes but um what I realized over time is that so when I was in school at UB the class that really blew my mind was experimental forms Mm -hmm. with Steve Mm Matanley and I remember at the time hopefully that is a a prerequisite for everybody I hope so too it was um or it stays a prerequisite for everybody it really I, I you know I grew up in I, I, I like to write all kinds of things. I don't like to limit myself to just poetry. I, I, li- I like to find the form and the type of writing and the shape mm-hmm. that fits a particular situation. And so when I took Steve's class, 
I was just like, wait, wait a minute, I can do what? <laughs> and I remember I I wrote, I got this idea in my head to write a series of poems that were all written in HTML. And um, as we did every class, you know, we got to class and you say, okay, we're going to go around the table and read things to people. And I hadn't actually thought about it, but it got to me and I, I said, um, I don't think I can actually read this to you. <laughs> I don't know how I would read, uh, you know, an HTML tag out loud. You have to just see it. And he was like, very, he was very understanding, <laughs> um, and it, I think intrigued, and um, and uh, was like, why don't you just explain what you were trying to do? And so I kind of explained the form, and then I I, I showed it to them and realized that, okay. I can do whatever I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not limited to a page. I'm not limited to a language. And I think, and then the other really eye opening moment was when I sat in on uh, Maria Barbosa's class. She did, I think kind of one time deal at UB and she did more of a traditional book arts class. And, and I made a book that was made out of baby lima beans, you know, and the, the and the idea was that, which is it, on, which got like a recognition it, right. on Bone, the, on in the Bone, Bone Philabiblon, yeah, in the Bone folder, yeah. Um, and the idea was, you know, I we were supposed to write a poem, make a book. The poem was, uh, here are all the words that make up a particular day. Each bean had a word on it, but they were how I saw it. I thought if I could make a form and people could kind of read it in a different way each time that might be kind of cool. And I remember being so nervous. It's the same way I was about the HTML phones. So nervous, even though I wasn't being graded on it, Mm -hmm. that people would be like, you're nuts. And um, instead, it turned into, it was really the turning point for me. And and feeling like a page isn't a page. Mm -hmm. A page should be whatever you want the page to be. And I'm okay with giving away the power of the reader to I'm, I'm away or I'm okay with giving away my power as the writer to the reader, to the reader. Mm-hmm. thank you that's what I meant <laughs> um and and from then on it's like the sky's the limit yeah and that's something that I I realized this morning like right before Meredith kind of mentioned the difference between or as you were describing or introducing each other um that y'all are really kind of on like opposite ends of spectrum when it comes to mm-hmm. making books that like Meredith has mentioned she makes like traditional fine bound books that look like like you go into a store and you see a hard like a hard bound book or hardcover book that's the stuff that Meredith makes and then Jenny's you know it's like you could be out somewhere and you see a rock and you lift it up and there's this like accordion fold poem thing that goes <laughs> underground and that's Jenny's book that you just happen you know like mm-hmm. to, to stash somewhere <laughs> um, and that's so in in Meredith's uh, book arts class, um, bookmaking class, whatever it was at, whatever it was officially called, and whatever we actually referred to it at the time, was it still LitPub? It was LitPub for a while, but it recently became Intro to Book Arts. Um, cool. Like one of the things that we talked about, um, or that you know was a, a like kind of a, um, a contemplation piece, was um, like what. In, in the the age of like e-readers where you can get just the text kind of disembodied from the book itself on some reader thing it's like what's the point of 
like the physical book or like what how does that how does it, like an e-reader change what the physical book is and i think that for both of y'all for like meredith it's the the experience of this like tangible hardbound fine thing that is like feels like it's very much part of the the long tradition of bookmaking and then with jenny's it elevates it I would right say. yeah that, and that yeah. i think that like when you're talking about um like Vanity Press and self-publishing stuff used to be viewed in a, um, like, with a lot of spurn thrown its way. Mm -hmm. Like, if you if you self-publish something, but you make it, like, a fine art, it's like there's a level of credence that's given, or a level of, like, uh, like authenticity given to it. It's like, you know, this is an acceptable form because it's, um, it's it looks as, as good as it, as it does. Whereas with Ginny's, um, it's like it really, like Meredith said, it really pushes the boundaries of like what you expect a book to be. And if now that like a book can be this disembodied amount, amalgamation of information in like an iPad or an e-reader, then it could very easily be, you know, a bunch of lima beans with words on them or a doll that has eels inside of it. That is the, like each eel is its own, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I think that that's, that the e-reader for me feel like it feels or like the, that moment of the book is no longer this is no longer bound to this thing because you know you had text online and stuff or like journals that you sure. could access um it really allowed it to be both and it kind of opened up this space for books to kind of go to be whatever it is that they want to be you either go super super into the tradition of what the book is or you just you accept it's like well you know fuck it i can like it can be you know whatever it needs to be now and mm -hmm. go that route that's one of the reasons that i love being a friends with Jenny. And me with Meredith. <laughs> no, because there, you say it's a spectrum, and it really, really is. Like, if you look at the most, you can go to uber fine, uber traditional, leather bound, mm -hmm. gold tooling, like, crazy town, fancy pants, traditional stuff. So fancy. But, but the fact of the matter is it's very easy to start to weird that. And yeah. I don't do my, when I weird, I tend to weird within those confines. And so, you know, you might have a page that folds out or mm -hmm. you might be triangle instead right, of yeah. rectangle. Um, You're playing around within the given form. Well, yeah. And it's subtle, but people who make books notice it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Really and, but what I love about Jenny's stuff and it's, an, it isn't, it inspires me to try to weird further. And I've always felt that way. I feel like. I feel like it's great to have people who, who live all over that. You know, you mm -hmm. get people like you or people like Amanda who are doing um, small press work in a really, really earnest, very real way. Mm -hmm. And you're packaging things in a handbound fashion, but you're, you're, you're working in a, in a space that's realistic to mass produce. Um, but still, there, there's this tactile sort mm -hmm. of fascination that can happen because mm -hmm. they're done with care and they're done with I have a, I have a book fest story to regale we all with mm -hmm. after so i i think it's great because it really can run the whole gamut and you can do that and you can do 50 of them or 100 of them mm -hmm. or you can do one single book that mm -hmm. is the shape of a, a horseshoe crab <laughs> um and, and that i mean and it and that's the thing about or it paper mache they, palm tree they become mm -hmm. like an e-reader to me is about convenience and yeah. easy accessibility to mm -hmm. carry around 15 books when you go on vacation or to read that thing you just you don't want to pay the full 20 bucks to get the hard copy, so you're going to buy it for $10. I like e the immediacy. Um, I yeah, think it, that's I... all good and fine, but I think when you make handmade books or when you think about even, even like, Anne, what's her name? 
box. And Carson. And Carson's mm-hmm. box. Or the there was a book about one of the World Wars, maybe World War Two, that was a huge. Joe Sacco. Yeah, an enormous, giant accordion book. Yes. It just is, so it's I have that. Like room occupied. S A C O S A C C O. He's a graphic novelist who does really cool, um, very realistic um, accounts of war. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this one happens to be about the Great War, right? Um, World War One. World War One, and it's just this this really intensely long pull-out scene. Yeah. But they, they become like a gift for the reader. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah. Because you've taken that level of consideration and thoughtfulness, which you don't have to take. Convenience is great in, in its time, but you, you can take that level of thoughtfulness and apply it in a way that surprises and delights people mm-hmm. and takes it a little further than even just what's inside as the text. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, hopefully the text also surprises and delights, mm-hmm. but just it's one big experience well, that was start to finish. Right, right. Um, so this this is a lead up to the the book fest thing, or I guess it I doesn't really matter which which order I do this in. But at at book fest, um, it was really it was neat to talk with a lot of people who like stopped by the table, you know, just like about what I do and kind mm-hmm. of why I I make why I make the books that I make and why I make them in the way that I make them. Um, and it got me thinking about. Um, and I, like, I think that I've, I've come to this conclusion, but it really kind of solidified it for me, that for me, e-readers, like Meredith said, are about convenience, about people who just want the content of, the, like, they just want the story, or they want, I mean, poems, but poem poetry feels like it's still has some issues with getting to an e-reader. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like if you have, if you have, like, a mystery novel, like, thriller series that mm-hmm. you're, you read the first five, and there's, like, six more in the series, it's easy to just download those six and have them on an e-reader and just you know, take it with you, you know, so you don't have a backpack laden with or books. Or like Patrick Rothfuss. I love right, Patrick yeah. Rothfuss. His books are gigantic. Right, I own yeah. them, but I read them on my e-reader so I don't hurt myself. Yeah, or like, um, <laughs> like any, any of George R. R. Martin's right. huge books, or like the later Harry Potters. You know, you have these things that are inconvenient in their physical form because they're so big. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice to have them as this, as like the object of it to see, you know, like how they're created and like the the artwork and stuff. But mm-hmm. if you just want the story, for me, e-readers, it's like that's mm-hmm. that's the the thing for them. Whereas with physical books, um, it's about like the experience that the, the reading the actual physical book gives to whatever is like whatever the content is. Um, and I've realized that I'm, I really like having the, I don't know if it's a control thing or if it's just more influence on the total experience of how people encounter my poetry. Because I've stopped, um, like I don't submit like anywhere because I, that's, I don't want people to encounter my poetry as just a single poet, a poem in a, like an anthology or like a magazine among other poems. Like, mm-hmm. If, if they're going to read them, I want to be, I want to have a hand in crafting the entire experience of, of reading it and like creating that space and creating that home for them. Um, so I really started thinking in like chapbooks as like the unit of how I, how I measure my poetry. It's like, um, I will, cause, and it helps that my poems typically come out in like groups of stuff that I've been thinking about, but I can package all that together. I can lay it out. I can design it. I can then create every 
do everything that I can and have influence over every aspect of the book to make it all lead itself towards a, like enhancing a very particular experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that I was going to tell you about Bookfest was that it was really neat to see people like walk by and then catch the uh, the press like the the books laid out on the tables mm-hmm. and then like you they look and then they kind of look away and they almost double take and then you like they're drawn to it and it was it um was really satisfying and encouraging to see that, that many people like it just as like looking or like coming up and like feeling them and opening them up and and like fiddling with them that there's still that sort of it's not that you know like e-readers are taking over everything and traditional physical books are going to go away it's like there's there will always be those people that want to go like i want to just want to like touch it and like feel it and i think there's a piece to the art too right yeah like if you come to my house or even to my office (laughs) you will see artwork that is made by pretty much everyone in my life Mm -hmm. and so there's i think there's a really big piece of this where you know I know who made this. I can imagine them making it. Mm-hmm. I can feel the There's love so that they put into the it. And it makes it in more the work. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that people, you know, I can imagine the people walking around the Baltimore Book Festival thinking, okay, here's another, here's another square, here's another square, here's another <laughs> rectangle. And, you know, reading and writing is supposed to be about uh, mind blowing experiences. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that there would be some not squares and not rectangles there too mm-hmm. i mean even just introducing unusual papers or, or things that you don't typically see when you walk into a bookstore and mm-hmm. you start to get to that level mm-hmm. i mean and i think your point about the artists is is well taken because i think even just a book as a physical object you maybe read it while you're sitting somewhere in particular or I mean, I attach great importance to the original copy that I read, and mm-hmm. I don't ever feel that way with an e-reader. That's very intangible sure. to right. me. Right, yeah. So even, it could be the the, the cheapest, most mass-produced copy of a book um, possible, and I'll start to attach significance to it because it's the one I read. Mm-hmm. And so as you start to layer meaning into that by knowing the intentionality that an artist, even if you don't know that artist that mm-hmm. they put into it, or knowing them and being able to sort of you know understand their style or imagine them in the act of creating the thing i think it just becomes a much more meaningful object there's an interesting book that i can't remember the author's name it's i think it's people of the book gwendolyn oh yeah march is maybe the name gwendolyn um brooks brooks but it's a it's i won't go on about that for too long but but suffice to say it's about um just a book that and how it's traveled through time and mm-hmm. this wine stain that's right here on this page right, they yeah. suddenly blow that out and for three chapters you're hearing about what happened during the course of time that this wine stain got onto the book and so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's any physical object be it a, a blanket or a, a, you just can have some of that that you can't right yeah I, I have necessarily a um, get elsewhere two books on my shelf one is uh, classic stories one by Ray Bradbury mm-hmm. um, I had a copy that I read in high school for summer reading that was the first like experience that I had with language actually being a living, shimmering, vibrant thing, mm-hmm. and I sent that copy to a friend of mine because we were doing like a book exchange. And this, like, right after I dropped it in the mailbox, I was like, "I've made a huge mistake." <laughs> so I found the same, like, the same edition, and it's like it's a little bit crisper, and the spine's not broken at all. Um, but I also have a book. One of oh, I don't know where. Let me see if I can find it. I got it at. One of the AW, aha, here it is. 
I got it, I think, at AWP in Boston. But it is a um, completely handmade, letter-pressed book. Um, this paper. Mm-hmm. That I don't <laughs> think, I, the publisher, I don't think, wrote it. But, like, that to me is one of the most, like, personal, like, objects, I think, that I own. The, the like, the, the publisher for me is so in that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's just like you know I can't like you said it's like I can't look at that without thinking about the experience that I had with meeting her and being at AWP and um, I think I think it's in the colophon but it's something mm-hmm. like 500 man hours went into making making the books it's lovely and, it, and you can sort of imagine that making each decision mm-hmm. feels very intentional and I think that that's like if you if you're gonna have a physical book, especially nowadays, um, where it's like you can get the convenience of the e-reader and downloading stuff, so if you're gonna go through the time and the effort to make a physical book, it's like you really need to make it something special. Which I think, going back to the whole like Vanity Press stuff, I think was maybe the issue that people would just you know it's like it, it would be stereotypically Vanity stuff would be like poorly edited or poorly designed. Mm-hmm. It's like people would go into it not really knowing what they're doing, whereas if you have the skills and you have the training and you have the understanding, it's like, I know how books operate, which is why I love, like, the, the, the second year for me at UB was uh, type and design in bookmaking. It's like, I really got a sense of, like, I know how to lay this out. I know what it will look like on the page. I now know how to, you know, more or less make decisions of, like, what the size of the book and what I, what I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it's like I can I can produce books myself that are very well edited and very well designed and crafted. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it's like you, they they are apparently head turning because a lot oh, yeah. of people would show up at the. Yeah, this is gorgeous and definitely something to aspire to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will see if I can find a version of it online or take some pictures of it to put up on the in the description. Cool. And to Jenny's point about, you know, sort of, I don't know this artist, I've never met them, and I'm really sad that you all listening can't see this. Um, but I mean, I've it has just, clowns on it. I've, I'm just kidding. It has no, birds. It has birds. Don't scare people. I saw a creepy video of a clown last night on Tumblr. Yeah, the clown. Making no. its own book. Let's not talk Ooh. about it. Nope, no more clowns. Don't like clowns. Okay. Okay, so I opened to just a random spread in the middle, right? And, and just based on what I know about book arts and not knowing this person who created this book at all... I know that this took three passes through a letterpress because there are three <laughs> colors. Mm-hmm. So, and I know that this person had to cut down each one of these pages, and I know that they sewed. You know, maybe they created illustrations. I don't know, but I know that they sewed the book. And so, I already know, based on nothing else, that the person lived with this copy of the book mm-hmm. for a significant amount of time. Yep. And you know what? To some people, that may not matter as much, but to me, that's important. Like mm-hmm. this book is well loved already before it's even arrived. It, yeah, to me. it comes to you with a, a greater like internal density I don't know it's like it, it makes it like emotionally heavier when you get it and you, you have something that's like somebody's it's like the, the pages were at least on the edge were torn it looks like so there's a level of like somebody's hands were all over the, the creation of this right it, it's very very neatly done but it's also worn in a way that is mm-hmm. lovely mm-hmm. you're this never w- going to get one of our books well Meredith's books are very crisp and and clean and new. Mine always are a little beat up by the time I'm done. <laughs> Some of mine are. Some yeah. of mine have things like deckled edges or, um, but yeah. I feel like though also I need to say that Meredith has made non-traditional books as well and one, one of my favorites is her 
lung book oh, that yeah. she made out of um, my experiments stuff. with um, uh, what was that stuff? Maybe liquid silicone. Oh yeah, I yeah. think it was complicated. I made these molds out of sculpey. Yeah, shaped. <laughs> they look like chicken cutlets actually. <laughs> That's what kind of. Anyway, um, and then I just painted layer after layer of silicone. But far less appetizing. Them. Yeah, oh, they were super gross. Um, it took forever. I mean, I had to paint a layer of silicone and then wait mm-hmm. a full 24 hours and then mm-hmm. paint another layer and then wait and I'd do that for two lungs and then join that all together. So, uh, you know, I think, and I made one of those. I mm-hmm. will only ever make one of those mm-hmm. because it's too labor intensive. Right. And also... Why would I make another one? Right. It's a it's an instant and a moment unto itself. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're interested in it. Like, I will never make another horseshoe crab, you know? <laughs> um, I could make another horseshoe crab, but I don't want to. It won't feel the same. And, right, yeah. And, in, and, you know, in talking about the instantaneousness of the e-book, or even the slightly less instantaneous printing mm-hmm. of something, I think one of the joys of the book, of book arts is... It taking a while and yeah. yours take different amounts of time and I like what you said about you know the letterpress of this book what, what's the title of this book I think it's courting an orbit courting I think an orbit wow that's a great sound yeah mm-hmm. but my I like that you know these things will you might you might just do one step of your book one night right and yeah. you have to wait for a week for it to be right and you have to roll it over in your mind for two years <laughs> before you really know what you're doing with something mm-hmm. that's what I like yeah, I, um, I was going to say something. Mm. Totally forgot. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, one, this was the, um, a direct influence of the size and the shape of my thesis mm-hmm. and, like, some of the, yes. the way that it was constructed. Um, so, shout out to... Mm, I will find you later. I can't, I can't <laughs> read your handwriting. Um, Alice, maybe she's on. You're. I follow you on on Tumblr. I can. I'll find you again. Alma. Alma. Alma Baumann. No, no. The 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 publisher is in Compass Press. Compass. No, but Press. the handwritten. Oh, oh. maybe is it? Mm-hmm. Is that Alma? I'm pretty sure that that's how. It's, uh, the last oh, name okay. is the same. <laughs> well, maybe I don't. Whatever. I I will. I I feel bad. This was kind of blown up my face, but I'll find you and I'll I'll put a link <laughs> to your your stuff. Um. But, yeah, like, when I was doing my thesis in Elise's book, like, I would tear everything, and then that would be, like, a day, because that would take, like, two or three hours. And then I would, you know, like, fold everything and then um, collate it, mm-hmm. I guess, as, in, like, another day. And then stitching everything would be, like, a time. So, like... But in, 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 the, in the time between those steps, too, don't you find that you also have this kind of a fascinating way of, of changing your mind. But like, you might have a plan mm. set out. I've learned not to have a plan anymore. <laughs> but, you know, you think you know what you're going to do, and then by the end it is 30 steps off of what you originally planned because the time allows you to... I don't know. Like, when I'm, when I'm making them, I... At that stage for me, things are pretty much... Like, everything's planned. Like, everything's measured out. Mm-hmm. Um... It's only if I've made like a grave mistake in my calculations mm-hmm. of how big something needs to be that I, I will mm-hmm. need to. Um, I respect that. Most most of the the inventiveness comes in into the the laying of the book out, like uh-huh. the laying it out itself, because it's all there's always that like that one problem poem that has to 
that you have to accommodate somehow or fit mm -hmm. it into. Yeah. Um, like Anthony's book, um, I couldn't use um, like the running indent because his poems are uh, correspond with the Fibonacci sequence, so they grow in, in syllable count cool. as the lines go down. Um, and you need the full spread of that to get like the effect of what the poem is trying to do, mm -hmm. whereas some of the other ones are super, super tiny. And then there's just the two final ones were huge. Actually, I can show you all <laughs> a version of it. Michael has crossed the room and is digging through a box, finding this book, and now he returns. <laughs> Thank you for the the play by play. No problem. Um, so most of the, the <laughs> cool. most of the poems in that collection in uh, Anthony Mall's uh, "Go to the Ant, O Sluggard" are super super tiny, um, but the final two are incredibly long, and it was a challenge to figure out the right the size of the book and also. Um, creating like the rules for this particular book of like how to make things work. Mm -hmm. So what I ended up doing is that um, all of the titles are in the same space or in the same place across like regardless of how long the poem is. And then I put a uh, text box in InDesign in the middle. Mm -hmm. And depending upon how long the poem is, it would be varying degrees, like varying tabs from the uh, the left side. Got it. So the ones that were super, super big run like the entire text box. And I did that, like I measured, I started with those and or once I, mm -hmm. I kind of figured out what I needed to do, it started with those would take up, the, like this is as big as things could be. And then for the small poems, I just bumped them to be more or less kind of in the middle. So mm -hmm. it would be, it kind of grows out from like the middle space. Very cool. But... By that time, I already knew how everything needed to be laid out and mm -hmm. all that, and then it's just a matter of, like I, for Anthony's book was the first one that I shipped out to Spencer to have it, to have somebody else print it. But yeah. they sent me everything flat, so I like folded everything and then bound it mm -hmm. um, myself. <coughs> well, I think some of what we're talking about is, an, is sort of an interesting sort of throwback to some of the comments we made earlier around the spectrum of book arts, because I totally hear where you're coming from, and I think... Jenny, when you're talking about, um, you know, the process, and, and I think it's very different when you're when you're working in an edition to create right. a series of mm -hmm. or the same just book over like and a over singular again, book. versus a singular mm -hmm. book art sort of object book, mm -hmm. uh, and I I think you're right because I think I think the things that I have learned are one I cannot book arts fast it just mm. doesn't it doesn't work right. because then I turn a book upside down. Um, when I try in to the rush most delightful way. Or the least delightful if you're doing it for somebody else and it's their journal and you just rebound it up there, which I did recently to, oh, a, to yeah. a friend. Um, I, there was lots of pressure. I was doing it fast and people were watching. Oh, so no, no fast book arts, no audience. Um, but I think the other really key thing too is that when you start to set, when you set out to do something that doesn't fit the traditional mold, like... I've done, I mean, mm -hmm. I used an accordion to make a giant snake book, but I wanted it to have skin that felt scaly. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's the other one. That was such a cool book. So, you know, and I've done, I did, I've done a couple of little series, again, of accordions, so still a traditional form, but with, um, with like an, a vellum layer with oh, a yeah, little piece of, a, of yeah. a background painting called out to be bolder mm -hmm. with the text. Anyway, so when you start to get into that space, that creative space of not doing something that does, you've sort of predetermined everything and you're doing it as a one-off you're working it out as you go you're trailblazing it as you know you, you may know. you may do mock-ups along the way to try to help figure that out but even then as you get into the final piece you're still going to have to make decisions and adjustments 
as you work and also because time is passing your understanding of what you want and what you're aiming for is going to shift mm-hmm. and so the way you approach it may shift or you may make a change because you've had more time to contemplate it I think mm-hmm. that notion that we talk about a lot in writing classes was it E.B. White or somebody mm-hmm. who said once you write something put it in a drawer and walk away for at least I don't know how long he said a year probably something really unrealistic 20 years <laughs> but you know the notion of letting it you're letting definite. it simmer and kind of come back to it later, that happens in book arts because it doesn't just... Right, yeah, because it necessitates that it takes a long time for stuff to happen. Like, oh, I could I could do this this way instead of Yeah, we're like the slow way. book movement. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, like, maybe also the slow, low book movement because I don't know if any of us are trying to get famous or published, really. No. It's about yeah. something else. Like, you know, when you're sending it out and you're hitting all the festivals and, you know, trying to get someone else to pick up your stuff. Like, I honestly don't care if anybody ever sees my stuff. And yeah. I don't send things to people generally. Yeah, there's, it's, it's a different... It's about a different... We have, I think, different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, it's, it's weird for me to kind of occupy the space of, like, I kind of don't care if not a whole lot of people buy the books that I make, but I also do kind of care because I'm publishing authors and I want to get like I want to yes. get these books into yeah. as many hands as possible. Um, so you're covering kind of both ends of that. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's a lot of time. It's a sort of there's some days that I can I can contain both of those like the dichotomy of that, and other days I I tend towards like depressive one side or the other. Or if, like nobody's buying my books. It's like I want people to buy my books, or the day that I'm cool with that. It's like. Yeah, it's you know I'm not I'm not I'm not doing it really for money. It's just for the act of doing it, and I want to like I want to create homes for mm-hmm. um, because it makes us happy. Yeah, yeah, which is not not a very good business model. Eh. No, but I think that's that's also the cool thing about being an artist. <laughs> like I think you can, and I've thought about this a lot because I have tried to do things like run an Etsy shop or go to craft fairs, and mm-hmm. I'm and I'm creating. By and large, at that point, journals or, mm-hmm. or, you know, I've done wedding albums, which that's an adventure unto itself. Um, <laughs> you brave woman. People have very strong opinions. Sure. Um, I've sure planned enough. a wedding. You get really caught up in what you need it to be. So I won't go there. Um, <laughs> suffice to say, you, you can think about it different ways. You can think about if I want to if I want to try to do this in some way to provide me some kind of income as a working artist, you can think about this is the range of things that I can do to cover that. But as an artist, you can also choose to say, but I'm going to devote a certain portion of my time. I think this is true just if you have a job and you're an artist. Mm -hmm. You're devoting a certain portion of your time to going to work and being good at the thing that you do and you earn the majority of your income at. But you can also find ways to work that in outside and and do Mm -hmm. the things that, that, that may not be appreciated in the moment by the masses, but are really cool and... I think will later come to life and then, or if they don't ever they make yeah. you happy and that's what matters and then you have or you have that one moment where somebody comes up and they're su- like that one person that is super enthusiastic about the thing that you do that yes. you can tell is like a maybe not a major defining moment in your life but it's something that's like is a, a turning point in some way for them like there was a there was a, a woman at Bookfest who um now this this feeds more of my encouragement as a as a poet, not necessarily as a as a bookmaker. Although I think that that's in there, um, that she bought uh, a copy of my thesis on Saturday, and then came back on Sunday and bought a copy of my new chapbook, Possessed by Space. 
Um, cool. She was like, I love, I loved it, and I, I had to come back and get the other one. I was like, I, this is the Aww. best, like one of the best experiences ever. <laughs> that immediate feedback of somebody that I don't know, who has bought one of my books, enjoyed it so much that she want that she came back and to get another yeah. one. Yeah, um, that's like that was awesome. that was like just it was amazing to yeah. to have that. I think that's a, a hard line to walk to as an artist of any kind. Trying, you know, I think I think we all want to find people who like the work we do, who appreciate the work we do. But I also think, I also think there's a contentment and a happiness to be had just in knowing you did something you, you, yeah. needed, you and you needed to express it and you mm-hmm. were passionate about it and it gave you joy. And being comfortable with that as the sole outcome maybe sometimes too. Totally. Yeah, I, I, yeah actually I would, I would say that one of the coolest things that has come out of my book arts is visiting classes Mm. and uh, there are two I go to every year one in the fall one in the spring and then um, one year I went to all the Howard County Maryland um, schools as part of the Hoko Palitzo um, uh, artist program and the coolest thing is being able to go to a room of students who are kind of maybe don't want to be there and um, show them something they've never seen. And with book arts, it's it feels like you're cheating. You're not just, <laughs> write, you're not just reading them a poem. You're also, yeah. you know, making them a little uncomfortable with your shapes. <laughs> Every time I pull the eel out of uh, out of my one uh, tin drum book, that's the moment in the class guarantee they all look up and they're like wait wait what are you doing (laughs) (laughs) okay we'll pay attention now Mm -hmm. um and so that is ultimately really really rewarding Mm -hmm. i don't intend to really sell anything i'm gonna make these whether anyone sees them or not right yeah because they're my own personal puzzle i need to solve and um but being able to do that has been really wonderful and and i I think that it's kind of like i mean i feel like we're kind of talking around this but it's you're you're operating on a different level of like the or like a different measure of success like for, yes. for you it's not like for, for big publishers I imagine like selling a shit ton of copies of a particular author's mm-hmm. work would be it's like that's the measure of their success whereas for book artists it seems kind of across the board if you do like traditional stuff or um, like more experimental things is the like your success is like re- meeting people and like touching them and affecting them in some like in a in a in a way that that there's either like an appreciation or a way like you've opened their eyes or something like mm-hmm. they come out of that experience changed somehow mm-hmm. um at least for me it's like that's i mean even as like a poet and a, a musician like that's kind of my goal is to like i want to somehow either subtly or profoundly affect you in a in a way that is in line with what i was intending yeah. to do with with my work yeah like if somebody set, sees my work and they're like what or cool or yeah i didn't know i could dot right. dot dot yeah that's a success to me yeah well i think and it, like you said i think jenny with book arts it's a little bit like cheating because i think people are so accustomed to that object that it's i, I i've done some stuff with art with a heart and i'll go in and teach in their jobs program mm-hmm. with with kids who they may not even be really thinking of themselves as artists at all, but we'll, you know, we'll make even just straightforward shapes. We might do basic chapbook pamphlet style, or we've, we've done, um, Coptic binding 
But I think people a lot of times don't even think about the fact is the book being something that you could make. Yeah. And yeah. so the moment you're like, actually, mm-hmm. wait a minute. You just made a book. You just made a book. Like, you, you <laughs> can make a book and I'll show you how. Or, you know, and then taking that even deeper and saying, you can make a book that doesn't even look like a book. You can, yeah. you know, do whatever you want. You can make a book out of a tree. Yeah. Um, I, I think, admire that you do that so much. It, it, it makes me think that, you know, part of our slow book movement is also necessarily teaching is a part of it. Even right, it's yeah, it's a, like you're giving you're giving someone the tools. It's yeah. not it's not just like showing them that you could do it, but showing them like how to do that and giving them the tools to not only make a book but to think about stuff mm-hmm. differently. Which I feel like like Steve's experimental forms or even um, like creativity, like that that to me feels like the the kind of core aspect of UB's program is that giving you the tools and the, the varying degrees of experiences to see things differently than mm-hmm. the way that you see them to see like and to see through that the possibilities of like whatever yeah totally can i hijack the interview for a second go for it okay oh. hijack whoa no so she's usually so nice <laughs> except right now i'm letting it all out no, so I'm curious because I've known Jenny for a long time and we've talked a lot about your books over the years, but I am curious because I don't know if we've ever really just had a conversation about, like, process is a really big word, but, you know, like, where ideas come from or how you decide you want to do certain oh. things or, like, you know, I know one of the other things I admire about you is your ability and willingness to, to actually, like, we've talked about living with a book. I live with a book for, like, a few months maybe and you you've lived with books for like for a year as you work through that process so my question is an open-ended tell me yeah. about your process <laughs> tell me um sometimes people ask me do the words come first or does the shape come first and so sometimes I think about it that way sometimes one comes before the other but ideally they'll both happen at the same time the horseshoe crab book was a, probably one of my best examples of that is you can't see it, but it's on my website, uh, jennyogrady.com. Um, I was enamored of the shape of the horseshoe crab and the life of the horseshoe crab. I grew up on the Chowtank River and on the Eastern Shore, and we would see, we would see the crabs, and so I loved the feeling of it, and I wanted to make something. I wanted to make something that had movement to it, but I also didn't want to stick a poem where it didn't belong if that makes any sense <laughs> and I wouldn't even say I knew it was going to be a poem but you know I think a lot of it was research for me and as I researched it I realized that the 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 horseshoe crab it, its lungs are called book lungs and it has and and these lungs are kind of these flaps and inside them is this viscous kind of gooey stuff and, um, and that's their lungs, and that's how they breathe. And there are basically 10 of them, two, two rows of five. And once I realized I wanted to make this, I was like, well, that seems like the perfect place for it. <laughs> Obviously, I'm going to write a poem that has, that's in, in mm-hmm. 10 pieces. <laughs> um, so I think that one came together in such a great way. A lot of my other ideas come from dreams. Ooh. All the time, dreams. Um, I, w- I often have they come in spurts and like I might have three ideas from a dream within two days because something weird has happened to me 
and then I'll spend two years making those three books. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and the, a book that I'm working on right now, actually, this is a very long-term, long-burn book, is one that came that started as form and is a bunch of Coptic books off of a, coming off a base. Originally, it was six coming off of one base in different directions. And then I decided just to see what would happen if I put a second layer of books off of the top layer of books. So it is, in the end there, there are 11, 23, uh, 23 uh, piece books in one book that all open in different directions. And it's a little Escher-y looking. Um, and I made it really only to see what would happen. I mm -hmm. had no story, no story whatsoever. Put it away. Then I start real. I start talking with people. A lot of it is talking to people. My friend Jim Duran at work is a really cool paper and other types of artist. And he's like, "What if you do a choose your own adventure?" And I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> You're amazing. That's what I needed to hear." Because I used to do um, like hypertext narratives, which is fancy for mm -hmm. web-based uh, choose your own adventures. And I grew up. A kid in the 80s so I love it, obviously and th but then then I had to think how does that fit into this 11 direction mm -hmm. thing and then it took going on a trip I went to a tr on a trip where I was I was staying in this house and the whole upstairs was this crazy ass maze of rooms and there was a hidden room I didn't even see until the second day I was there and that reminded me of dreams I've had all my life and I realize now, so I am working on creating a choose-your-own-adventure where you're going from room to room in my book, and and it's okay that it's not a traditional story because that's not how dreams are. Right, yeah. So this is now my dream book. And nice. it, so I know that's like a long and crazy way of talking <laughs> no. about my no, process, that's awesome. but that's just like an example. Yeah. No, I think that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. But in, in the, the, tin, uh, the tin drum... Mm -hmm. books each of those I Michael was talking about you know the experience of someone opening and, and reading your book that one was I was purposefully trying to make it uncomfortable for mm -hmm. the reader too it's um, a so really it's a like really that. uncomfortable book yeah it's an it's a real everyone should read the tin drum by Gunter Grass it's a crazy crazy book and you know so sometimes it's that like I'm giving away my power but I'm also, I'm holding a little bit of it because I really want you to feel weirded <laughs> out when you read that one. That, how about you? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that my process, because so often what I like to do is to explore existing forms, a lot of it is about mastering the form and then, mm -hmm. and then figuring out, well, okay, now that I know how to make a Coptic book, can I sew a pattern on the spine you know when I yeah. work mm -hmm. or you know now that I understand the basic premise of how to do a, a cutaway can I you know something on the cover where I'm able to inlay material or do something different you know what if I this is actual a real example which is gonna sound hokey but like can I do an American flag on the cover of a book which I did in celebration mm -hmm. of the war of 1812 with the oh, Maryland oh, Historical yeah, Society that was incredible so it's things like that, and really, it's a lot of asking questions, and could I do this? Can I do that? So, did you, how did you do the American flag? 
I, it wasn't a literal interpretation of the American flag. It was more of a, a sort of a, like a, there's probably a name for this, but we just kind of focus in on a part of it. So I sort of had one section that I did star cutouts, and then I had some stripes. That, but okay. it wasn't like a full-on right, yeah, flag. It, it was mean... kind of just a slice of the American flag. Mm-hmm. Um, but you cut that out of like the, the big I did board. it as, yeah, I did it as, um, man, why is my brain failing me right now? What do you, you call You haven't had any that? coffee. I'm gonna let you I think about coffee. it and say that the what was super cool about whether you were doing this consciously or not. I remember that book, and it was for a specific celebration, and the fact that it was a play off of the current flag, but also felt a little bit like the flag that was the flag at the time. Oh. It felt like a really cool in between flag shape. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, an inset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, oh, see okay. what we just did? So, you know, you can inset an image where it's just slightly sort mm-hmm. of down into the cover of the book, but I just wound up doing that and then doing colored strips across it. So uh, okay. using some of those techniques or like, could you, what could you do with foil stamping, you mm-hmm. know? So for me, that's a lot of it when I work in traditional forms. And when I do something that's less traditional, like the lung book or the, uh, you know, or the snake book or... Or a four-out. Yeah, yeah, that's... It's, it's so much more just about asking questions. Well, can I do this? Well, what happens if I do this? Mm-hmm. Um, I did a book with a Linda Crossfield, a Canadian poet, and it's... She's super cool. It was... I let her... Did I let her... No, I hot foil stamped the covers, but I... Her poem... C-R-O-S-S... C-R-O-S-F-I-E-L-D. Um, so, for that book, her poem... It's, it, there's probably, again, a name for this form. I've prepared super well for today. Where she, she starts to write a series of lines, and in the middle it turns and goes backwards through those lines again. And oh, so like what a palindrome? Mm-hmm. Kind of. So what I did was I set the book up so that I printed it, and one line of the poem, like they go across the book this way, across the accordion pages, but then it turns around and upside down and goes back the other way to the front. So it's it's just little things, like how can you express that or how can you think through that? and. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I will get wild hairs and be like, well, I want to make a book out of grass. And I have several of these ideas. Yes, like, yes, I want to make a fair. book that is a bag that has birds coming out of it. And I've had that idea for like, for like five years and I still haven't figured out that's how to That's the appropriate amount of time, man. But, so probably, I feel like maybe that's really like a 10 year book. So we should do another podcast in That's exactly what we did that book. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do yeah. a where are they now? Where are, they now? where are these books now? Yeah, um, you know, but some of it is just, some of it is as you learn certain skills and you start to realize, oh, I can execute that idea mm-hmm. or, or I can't. Um, it's, and, and did you all in, in the UV classes um, wind up using the book What If? Because when I was there... We, no. Was that a Linda Berry book? No. No, it's it's kind of a book that... It's, it, it has writing prompts in it. Uh, it's been around for a million years, but it wound up being my favorite question, and it, it, it opens up the realm of possibility for what you might do, and I think that it it, it put that in me uh, for book arts, and it yeah. sounds like you, maybe it, it infused in you, even though mm-hmm. you haven't read it. Yeah. No, <laughs> I picked it up. Yeah. You know, in the like, universal what, vibes. Well, this is cool, but what if I did this over here? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the cool thing. I was... Um, I had a little bit of that uh, last night. I was teaching my partner how to do a, um, a mod, like a kind of modified double pamphlet stitch, which I can actually show you. Um, so I've been working on, like I have a GoFundMe and I have varying degrees of rewards, which mm-hmm. Ginny donated to. Um, but one of them, for two of them, it's uh, journals. Um, mm-hmm. So my partner donated some money and I've already made her a journal. 
So I was like, do you want to, you want to just learn how to make them? And she's like, yes. Of course. <laughs> so cool. uh, for a couple hours last night, I like I showed her how to how I typically tear stuff, and then. Um, very nice. This feels very nice <laughs> in my hands. Mm -hmm. um, gentle re uh, listeners. Gentle but, readers. <laughs> um, so the way that I did this guy is that, you know, it's like you do, for the typical pamphlet, double pamphlet stitch, you just open them both and you go through both of them. But for stowing the end pages on, you add like a little guy in the middle. But I was thinking, because I have books that I'll probably do that are, um, you know, more than just two signatures. So I was thinking, is there a way to do like a double, double pamphlet stitch, where I have them set up so that it's, you can, they'll end up being like side by side, but all stitched together. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was messing around with it a little bit last night of just kind of like putting paper together, but I will, I'm seriously gonna yeah. pursue that because if I can just do like that level of, or that kind of end paging instead of having to glue down the end pages to the cover and, and mm -hmm. to the thing, it just it would make the like the process easier for me. Um, but yeah, it's like that whole sort of like I like I wonder if I could do like what would what would yeah. this look like? I think the coolest books. I mean, that's one of the cool things about teaching in the UB program too, and I know Jenny will speak to this as well. Is you get to see how other people answer those questions. Mm -hmm. You know, when you say, well, I want you to make for your final project, I want you to make one artist book and go all out, you know, defy what is book and, and sort of ask yourself what if, and, and you see people who who create things that are, they're like 3D floor, pan, floor plans, excuse oh, me, like Ian, yeah. you know, he did a, a book where you literally, you're like looking at what looks like a blueprint, but you, you pull out a, an accordion book out of the frame, or, you know, somebody who does a triangle shape book, or His, someone um, who's totally sculptural. Uh, Anthony has his hanging up in his room on the his, book, I mean, not, not his room. Yeah. Book. So Ian, um, the same guy who did, Ian Anderson, who was, um, I, who was on the publishing panel episode with, um, Mike Tager and Amanda McCormick and Tracy Diamond, um, for, so when we were in the, the book arts class, the midterm project was to do an edition of 10, um, 10, uh, handmade or like tin whatever like more or less traditional style things of somebody else's writing just to kind of get us in the sense of like creating something that is that has the spirit of the book or the, the poem or whatever it is that you're dealing with and Ian chose I think uh, Bluebird by Charles Bukowski mm. which is a poem about like a, a bluebird in a cage and so he made he cut out like a shape of a bluebird and made like had the poem inside of that shape and then put it in a like a chicken wire box a cage that you can't get the bird out of unless you break the cage, which is kind of like the, the point of the poem. Mm -hmm. So it's like form mimicking the content and or whatever, but that, you know, it's like you, he had a kind of more or less traditional looking book, but in a very untraditional mm -hmm. um, form. And I, I did one, um, which again, I can show you since we're in my apartment. So in the in the making making people uncomfortable vein, um, while Jenny's uh, opening it up, it's a, <laughs> it uh, so I did a book that cannot be aside from like the mm -hmm. the front two pages cannot be read and cannot be opened. Um, this is true. Um, 
And the the front page has the word please on it, and then two pages in it says just leave me alone, which is where you see that it's been double stitched and completely closed off. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I was, I think that was the, um, a while ago we were doing a, like a book arts, like monthly meeting thing where we did like a, mm-hmm. like a book a month. And this one was a self portrait. Um, and I had been working on another book idea that I had. So this is kind of the, the mm-hmm. figuring things out as you go. And it was not working out for me at all. And cause I was, I was trying to get like a total self portrait. And then I was like, well, at any given day or any given emotion, it's like that if for that time that can be the self portrait. So at the end of the whole process, I was feeling super just dejected and depressed and down with myself. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to deal with anything. <laughs> and that turned into the book, which is this, um, like the book, you know, the typical book form is you open it up and you read it. And that's like the, mm-hmm. that's what people want to do. And I wanted to create something that, um, like you don't, you don't realize until after you've experienced it, that you've done something that was like against the wishes of the book or against like there was no consent that this book had to being read it was just Mm -hmm. you know and then like that that reaction is just like oh 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 no um (laughs) but Mm -hmm. and i really so i one of the things that i enjoy hearing y'all talk about books is the 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 idea i guess this is more for like artist books is like you take one poem or one idea of something and then create that single book out of it. So with Ginny's like the um, the horseshoe crab, it wasn't an mm-hmm. entire series. It wasn't like a chapbook of poems about a horseshoe crab. It was one poem mm-hmm. written specifically for the form of this thing. Or like your um, your snake poem, your mm-hmm. Ouroboros was like a specific. It was one poem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like. Um, like, when you're not dealing with an entire collection, when you're dealing with just one thing, you can really kind of drill down and get to, the like, the heart and the core of what this thing is and the best way for that to be, or a best way for it to be, like, out and experienced yeah. Yeah. physically in the world. It's not unlike poetry without any, without any um, publishing attached to it. Right, yeah. I, you know, you would have your idea and you would, I, I guess, pick the form that makes the most sense for it and we're just mm-hmm. taking it on a little yeah more physically and the other cool thing too that like jenny alluded is that you can start with a piece of writing and then figure out what that wants to be as a mm-hmm. book or um or you can kind of figure them both out at the same time or you can let them well i guess maybe this is an extension of that but you can let them mutually influence one another like mm-hmm. michelle yes. Juno oh, yeah. did a, a summer class with me and she basically spent the entire eight weeks just working on trying to create this non-traditional book, this book arts object that was for, um, it, it, I don't know if I would even call it totally pure fiction or, or poetry. It was, it was an experimental piece. And it, and the book influenced the writing as much as the writing influenced the book. And, and because she controlled the entirety of that experience, she could say, I don't want that line in there anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I need to add something new. Or I need to, to shift how these are broken. Right. Because, right. I'm, because I can control it from start to finish. Whereas... I think there's a kind of frustration when you only control one piece of it because you right. as the writer then hand that book off and someone else as the designer or publisher interprets it and turns it into an object. It's like script like screenwriters and then the rest of the production of the film. It's like you can yeah. you can have a script that is phenomenal and then when everybody else gets their hands on it they turn right. it into a big a big pile of 
not good. Yeah, actually, uh, back in the early days of the MFA program, Art Spiegelman, creator of Mouse and so many other amazing graphic novels and, and New Yorker covers and such, um, he spoke. He spoke, and we wow. all went. And one of the things he talked about along those lines was he feels that the graphic novel is the form through which the creator has the most ultimate choice. Mm. I would say that is probably true. Um, <laughs> but that that book arts is right up there with it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and imagine being a graphic novelist who also makes your own book. I mean, exactly. it's just... Right, yeah. Exactly. At some point, even as a graphic novelist, you still hand it off right. to somebody. And, and he spent seven years... Seven years drawing mouse yeah right yeah. so i appreciate that you know each <laughs> the and long every form. page mm-hmm. was right, a yeah. struggle and a commitment and uh um he, it took as long yeah. as it needed to take and that's yeah. that's something that i mean it's like meredith was saying that you know you tried various varying other practices or mediums of arts and it didn't like none of them really worked out for you and i think that there is something that's like if you have a really, really good idea, but you can't draw it, um, you know, it's like if you can influence and you can control the things that you want and make it to be as close as your your initial vision or like your what you have in your head, that's great. But in the event that you can't, I, you know, I feel like it's super important that you connect yourself with artists or collaborators that get what you're going for. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which I feel I'm grateful for the. Uh, Anthony and Elise mm-hmm. and the um, Dana Stetko, who's my next, I think, like official publishing project for Akinoga Press, um, for essentially like trusting yeah. me with their words and like knowing that, oh, having that level of trust, it's like I will create something that fits with like what they're going for. Mm-hmm. Since you know they they're not the ones that are creating the rest of the book, it's like you know I, it's my my job as both an editor and a publisher is to get, like, to get their vision and get their words as, like, to get, to align myself as close as I can with that and to, to you know, like, for that intended end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I think even as the person who gets handed that stuff, like, it can be an interesting creative challenge mm-hmm. to figure out how to oh, work yeah. with somebody else's material, but also you may come up with a really amazing creative solution that you can't execute because it it dishonors the original right. intent. So mm-hmm. right. I think on all sides, you know, there's frustrations and, and I mean, there's also excitement as a writer when somebody publishes your book and they put work into it and they design it or they do something. You get you. It's a gift to you, mm-hmm. but. It, those things also there's it's trade-offs all yeah. the way across sure. the process so sure well that's I it's interesting that regardless of like the the style of the work that I've been given as a as a publisher I've definitely developed like a particular aesthetic style for my press and it's been interesting to see that like it it's unique and it's special to the book itself but overall there's a definite like I tend to do things a particular mm-hmm. way um well I think that's one of the things that's so cool to look at mm. folks who come out of the program yeah mm-hmm. you know from a little bit afar I'm you know I'm at home I have kids and you know but I see folks uh div- you know when you're in school you're just writing and writing writing and making and making and making and if you had asked me at that time what do you write about I would have said I don't know whatever I feel like at the time <laughs> and it takes years mm-hmm. to develop that voice and you're developing your look and your mm-hmm. style 
and you know however many years later i could tell you oh wow if i really look at all this stuff here there is a theme right yeah that's weird (laughs) (laughs) but you don't have that right away so it's really fun to watch the students come out you know all you know excited about what they want to do and then see it change too well that's something like the (laughs) at least the last round i really noticed this of MFA graduates, like looking at all their books, it they every single book felt so specific to the person that created it, right. and that's at the time. yeah, and that's something I think with like, with book arts or you know like if you if you have the skills to design your own stuff, it's like you really get much more of a sense of like the snapshot of the the artist at that given time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, this but is like back Sylvia's when I was using beans. Sylvia's <laughs> book, like her cover, it's like that that is yeah. that's her. Totally. Yeah. It's like that perfect for her. Sylvia's amazing with patterns. Oh. I will she have creates to look incredible up. illustrations. And, yeah. And like she even goes beyond illustrations and can figure out ways to make them connect and interact with one another in a way that like it's just incredible. I don't, I don't I, get it. I don't, I don't think she's ever, I'm saying this, Sylvia, if you have ever done textile arts, I'm sorry that I'm wrong. But, you know, I don't think she's ever done textile arts, but she totally has this sensibility of mm. it. It's fascinating. Hmm. She does incredible stuff. Yeah. Maybe she will now. Because <laughs> she heard it on this podcast. I've, I've accepted it. Right. <laughs> um, so we've covered a good chunk. Even your your hijacking was actually one of the things, oh, one of my questions. You You're yeah. welcome. <laughs> yes. Um, we were journalists, too. So... <laughs> um, <laughs> I do want to note this because I found myself doing this a lot more since being in the design and the bookmaking class. Do you judge books by their covers? Yeah. Or by their just their design, like overall? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I did that before I was in the program. That is, I mean, I, I guess it happens on different levels. Oh, yeah. I feel like. I have to form my answer to this question. Do you have one? That's sure, right? sure. <laughs> I think it, it depends on the type of book. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if it's, uh, you know, a traditional uh, paperback that I might find on the shelf of the bookstore, I'm, I'm obviously drawn in by an image and I'm hoping that it's going to be something based in, and then I'll read a few, uh, a few pages and see if it, if it matches up. And, but, but even with that, I have in the back of my Keep mind. Keep talking. I have, I, I have another, yeah. something else to show you. Okay. Even, even in the back of my mind, I am aware, you know, the author of this book probably had very little to do with the cover. So, you know, you're sort of judging and hopefully it's drawing you in a po- in drawing you in in a positive way, but you're also kind of aware, you know, in the larger publishing industry, it's very unlikely that this writer actually had anything to do with the cover. And so it's really just a sales tactic and boom, it worked on me, la la la. But uh, versus, you know, picking up a book that someone made intentionally and had control over, then it's more like, you know, what what Meredith was talking about earlier that oh invisible cities yes um that if you know it was handmade then it's it's not judging it's more of an appreciation and kind of Mm. like um maybe a silent unraveling of the of what we guess might have been the process and the decision making and in that case it's more like going to a museum and and looking at a piece Mm. of art and thinking about what went into it so it's more of an appreciation than a judging. Okay. Yeah. No, I think that's spot on. And I, I think the, the only thing I would really add is I, I feel very sad for books that get really bad covers. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, just poorly designed or when 
the movie cover takes over. Oh, geez, or, yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the terms of mass-produced books, yeah. I mean, and I do, I will say I pause to really appreciate it when mass publishers are thoughtful and do beautiful mm-hmm. things, as like in this. Invisible Cities, the yes. book you cannot see, but that we are looking I at. Will, I will find a, um, a picture, or at least like the the site for this, but it's uh, Ido Calvino's Invisible Cities. And, and I've actually, I was at Barnes & Noble recently, and there, um, this publisher has been publishing other stuff by Calvino in the same, okay. like the covers nice. look, like thematically you can tell that there's similarities between them. But I, I kind of want to rebuy all my Calvino because <laughs> all of mine I bought while I was in college yeah. in the 90s <laughs> and they were all, in, they were all clearly connected but in a different way. They're doing yeah. that with, um, whoever's, I guess it's vintage, um, there's a new run of, uh, Murakami, like all of his uh, novels are getting like the covers are all yeah. yeah. Um, but I love like for those of you who've never read uh, Invisible mm-hmm. Cities, the the premise of the book is um, Marco Polo talking to Kublai Khan about all the cities that Marco Polo has he has visited, and they're impossible cities of like the future and the past and things that can't possibly exist. Um, but it's all like they're all themed and they all kind of get weaved into each other or woven into each other. Um, but the cover is white. Um, it has Calvino in script in the top and looks like script handwriting, invisible cities on the bottom. Um, there is the stylistic kind of like uh, really open, lazy, laying down V of a bird in flight. But um, there is a, I guess, like an inset almost. Mm-hmm. Um, like blind stamped sort of feel of a like a block with some stuff hanging out of the bottom that gives a sense of like a, of a physical structure maybe a building that is off somehow which is a very good sort of like at least for me a very a very good way into the the, the collection and the book mm-hmm. um, and really for me it's like as covers it's like it does the job it's like it gives me kind of like the establishing shot of movies it's like it should tell you everything that you need to know about this book mm-hmm. in like a snippet or like the the essence of it um, but it also feels right you know and that's right. what the great thing about yeah. it is that you know you can feel this shape inside the cover and it just it piques your interest and it makes you feel like wow this is this book is about imagination, but it's also mm-hmm. about um, so much more. I think building on that, I mean, there are there are lots of there are publishers like Chronicle Books who they just bring a level of thoughtfulness to the creation and design of their books, and I think that's to be applauded because it is very easy to just go the traditional route and and published in the easy fast way mm-hmm. um, and when they don't I think that's a really great thing and in terms of just jumping back to what Jenny was saying when you look at somebody else's handmade book I mean yes you may look at it and think oh I, I wouldn't have thought to do it that way mm-hmm. or um, oh it's really cool that they used XYZ material mm-hmm. and you start to look at it and think about you know well, how many passes of the letterpress did it take to achieve right, that yeah. and you start to as a fellow as I, person or artist, you start to think about how it came together. Or so. how did they sew that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I've definitely, I did this, I judged books by their covers before the program, but now that I have a better sense of, like, the, the design elements, and I'm a lot more ruthless, I think, when it comes to seeing books that are just, like, you know, 
Like, I, I've been at Ukazu a couple times in the used poetry section, and I see a book that has, like, papyrus on the cover, and then the text is Comic Sans, and I'm like, I can't, I cannot read this, and I feel bad because I've probably passed over some good poetry that's been formatted like that, but you kind of, like, I, at least I feel that, like, rightfully or wrongfully, if you have a very bad design for a book, it's you kind of infer that the writing in the book is also not going to be right. like of a particular caliber, which I don't think is always the case. And I, I agree that, you know, it's like sometimes you don't have, like the author doesn't have um, like the say of, I don't like this. It's just that it just kind of comes out and happens. Um, and I, th I agree that with when you have an, a handmade book, all of the decisions you look at them as if there's some sort of intent or some sort of like conscious reason of why this happened because if like the, the author or whoever it is that made this book put in the time to make this thing then it wouldn't have like unless it's like a you know like a crappy and I don't mean to, to pair crappy and DIY zine feel but you know it's like there you can have some books that are kind of rough or just kind of thrown together that you're like you didn't spend any time making this but I generally I feel there's like, a reason for being right. As yeah, long as there's, a, there's a reason. It's yeah. okay with me. Yeah, yeah if somebody say. is going to somebody someday is going to write the perfect poetry for Comic Sans, and it's going to feel right, <laughs> and that typeface will be redeemed. And, yeah, you know. I mean, I think you see people do that. Like, I mean, it's really easy to snort at the idea of papyrus as a typeface because you. But I mean, <laughs> to Jenny's point, like there are people who will intentionally take that. Right. Like, and and own it and make it and make it a, a done on purpose mm -hmm. driving the story kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I yeah that's and like then that's there's... when it has value. I think a lot of it comes down to when people just do it because they didn't they didn't bother no, to think about right. it or they, you know, you just. And I definitely feel like you can tell, um, like the level of thoughtfulness or the level of intention. And if you look at something like, oh this oh okay I I get why this is mm -hmm. or like it's something that's intentionally badly designed you're like oh this there's a point yeah. behind this instead of it being just yeah like this is just a bad design a, an interesting article in wired a while ago that anybody who's a designer should read and it was the guy who does their design and he was talking about you know you set it up according to all the rules and he says but then my last pass is to look at it and go now where can i break it mm -hmm. <laughs> because yeah. it adds an element of interest well that's something that i've i've thought about um uh with um, like any time that you're writing within a structure, and I've I think that I've mentioned this a couple of times, and I should actually do the research to figure out if this is true or not. Um, but I've heard that either the majority of E. E. Cummings poems, or at least a, in like particular collection, the majority of them are written in the form of a sonnet. Mm. It's like they're sonnets, but they're just heavily broken and heavily like massaged and you know pushed around. Cool. Um, and I think that um it's valuable to know and it, like the whole adage of like you you can't break the rules until you learn them which i don't think is true because you can obviously do something that breaks the rules it's just once you gain the knowledge you understand like how to do it effectively or how like if you how far you can push something before it stops being an effective form of whatever it is that you're trying to do like with coming to sonnets, if they are actually sonnets, like he gets them right to the point of like this doesn't function as like language or poetry anymore. 
but he's he's like right within that line, and I like you. Uh, I assume probably the, the way that the what the article mentions is, you know, like how you can do these things effectively to to subvert people's um, expectations or, you know, like break with the tradition in a way that's effective and it pulls the story or it feels like it's inherent and intentional and there's a this, like a reason behind doing it instead of. You know, like not knowing anything what you're doing and just doing a bunch of stuff, which could end up working, but you'd have no idea like why it worked or why it didn't work unless you had a greater sense of like, this is the structure, these are the traditional rules to the structure, and this is where some space is that I can push and, you know, mm -hmm. a little bit of give. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, okay. What, for both of y'all, favorite book and least favorite book by design, like the design element? Of it if you have one if you don't it's cool mm -hmm. favorite book and favorite um this is gonna sound crazy because it's not gonna it's more about what the timing and who gave it to mm, me okay um is it old does it smell good it's more about that okay. for me than anything else so the books that are produced okay um, I might be drawn. I, I I mean I've certainly bought books because they have a cool look to them, but it's definitely more about like the a context. Person, a person, okay. yeah, the context exactly. Hmm. Yeah, I'm totally failing at this question. <laughs> it's okay. There's actually a book about book arts, and I I'm trying to remember who whose it is. But it's a kind of a Coptic bound with mm -hmm. cardboardy looking covers, and it, it's just an interesting looking book. But I agree with I agree with what Jenny said. I mean, I think you know I I'll definitely, but it's also like if you ask me to pick a favorite song or a favorite book or story or a favorite right, like I, I would be very oh, yeah. hard pressed to be like this one is my favorite. Mm -hmm. Right. If you ask me who my favorite book, it's like who or uh, okay, maybe right like now, a a favorite. favorite, not like the yeah. not the pinnacle, but one. Like, <laughs> Okay, well, I guess modify question. Is there a, like, book by design, either in, like, layout or the construction of it that is, like, high up on either a level of influence or something that was, like, that affected your art or your process in a, in a meaningful way, either as, like, I should, this is something I should emulate or something I should try for, or this is something that I should never, ever do, ever? Um, so... I have this book, and I feel really dumb because I can't think of the... It's, uh, I think it's C.K. Williams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very long line poetry, right? Mm -hmm. It's a small press book somebody did, and I've showed it in class. It's It's been letter pressed, and, and like parts of it will fold out or like mm -hmm. come out this... Like you guys can see this. <laughs> Pages will fold up and out, or they'll fold at the sort of the foredge. They'll fold out and extend, so you can really look at the lines. And I think... For me, that's a good illustration of it's it's just a simple pamphlet stitch book, but what you can do when you're willing to push the boundaries even a little. Mm -hmm. You can start to create an experience that's very different from what a typical book will give you. Um, in terms of other books, I feel like I need to go back to my house and look at my bookshelf. I know, it's it's really hard to answer that question. I wish I can't remember the name of this book either. <laughs> I'm terrible. I was a terrible English major. I can't remember anything, but um, 
when I stopped, when I when I retired from teaching at UB, one of the things that Kendra and the the other teachers gave me was a book of Ferlinghetti poetry, oh, okay. and it is a very cool binding. It is a it is a kind of an exposed uh, book uh, um, binder board with kind of a pressed black look on it. The whole thing Ooh. is designed really well. It, it, it's such an interesting piece all on its own visually and um and I you know I put it away so my kids can't mess it up basically which is why I can't remember the name of it but but again that is also precious to me because of why I have it mm -hmm. so um, but it's a gorgeous book and I believe okay. she got it at the, at the Ivy uh, books bookshop I've seen it there too yeah there's a lot of books from the golden age of like hot silk or hot screen Oh my gosh. I must go get coffee. Yeah. Um, that's our next stop. Hot foil stamping that just, they're, they're sort of in the art deco or nouveau style that are just gorgeous to look at. Um, mm -hmm. I have one from the, I think it's late 1800s. It's called Captain Fritz and his adventures or something very silly and of the time, but it's just done beautifully. There's silver on the cover. It's gorgeous. You so. gave me the, um, the stab bound. Yeah. Art of war. I mm. use that as my, the, my, my book press last night. Um, it is but, a a hard hardback or hardcover, uh, stab bound copy of Sun uh, Sun, Sun Tzu's Art of Art of War. Yeah. Mhm. Mm yep. I just really like when people take the time. Yeah. I mean, but I also, you know, I I was looking at your bookshelf for inspiration. I mean, Shelves. I love Neil Gaiman. It Mine's doesn't. Right. It doesn't even matter. Ooh. Ancillary Justice is good. So, House <laughs> of Leaves is really cool, and from yeah. the design perspective. You have so many copies was, of House of Leaves. Um, it got botched a little bit, but on oh, yeah. the version that I have of um, Murakami's The Color Lists, mm -hmm. oh, geez, um, Tsukuru Tazaki and his Years of Pilgrimage. Um, the, the point of the book is that there's this guy, um, Tazaki, who um, has a couple of friends that are all denoted by color, and he, because they have like their name lends mm -hmm. itself to a particular color and his doesn't so he's the colorless one so on the cover mm -hmm. it's a hand and each of the fingers are a different color and the thumb is colorless but if you open it up it's like a, um these strips of color and like um train map mm -hmm. subway deal um which lends again kind of lend, like you get a sense of what this book is going to be about based on the cover design mm -hmm. and a really interesting use of the the dust jacket and the actual like the stuff that's on the hardcover because I have a like I always take dust jackets off because it's difficult for I don't like reading books with them and it's always sad to see like there's a dust jacket that looks gorgeous for all you, you, you aspiring book artists who want to use dust jackets Ugh. please make there be a surprise under there oh that's like the lines oh I just finally these are the different like train, train lines, lines. Right. And, like oh I just finally ah, clever clever experience that doesn't stop yeah <laughs> but it's also this is something that i've thought about um like seeing all the varying editions of books and like the different covers and the fact that like they all i have a i have um i had an earlier version of bradbury's fahrenheit 451 with like the the man the paper man Burning. with his mm -hmm. like head in his hand and he's on fire mm -hmm. and then i have another one where the cover is like just it's matches right yeah yeah um, 
So it's a book that has a little like the cloth bookmark coming out of it, and but it opens up to like a head of That's matches. Cool too. Um, and like the book is b bigger overall, so it's not as thick, and like that changes the experience of the book because there's now like you get more of the line and more of the, the story on mm -hmm. the page. Um, yeah, there's certain uh, trade paperbacks that I think a lot of us probably read in high school, you know, like or before, like the Lord, the old Lord of the Rings oh, cover. Yeah. We can all recognize the. Um, uh, what am I trying to think of with Soma and um, uh, I can't remember the name. What's wrong with me? Oh, what, whatever. Lots of books we read for school that we, we you know, and I, I think I read that same version of Fahrenheit 451 with the with the newspaper man. Or the main man made out of newspaper. And it's like, that cover definitely gave, for me, like that book a particular um, like color or tone or mood. And the other one, it's a very different mood, but it's still, like it mm -hmm. fits. And I think... Um, Brave like, New World, that's what I was trying to say. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> I think Chip Kidd came to speak at Micah a couple of years ago and talking about like cover designs and stuff. I, I feel like he may have mentioned this, but if it's not from him, then it's something that I guess I just thought of that... Um, you have like a infinite, um, infinite possibilities of what a cover design could be, and any person that you give it to will come up with something different. But I like the goal. I think is that they all feel thematically like they fit. That there's something like something from the book or, or the content itself is like informing, and you're drawing out the cover or whatever mm -hmm. it is, whatever design choices that you do start in like the content itself. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why uh, that's part of why I don't like to make traditional covers because I, I stink <laughs> at it. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> that's a lot. There's a lot riding on that cover, so I just avoid it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why have a cover when you can have like a doll or just a? When you can be something out. else, exactly. Yeah. Your whole book is a cover, though. Right. Right. That is easier for me to figure <laughs> out. No, I mean like then, like uh, that's a real thing though. Like you do. You do 3D covers instead right. of flat covers. Mm -hmm. I do have trouble figuring out where to put a title, though. Sometimes I just don't have one on there. I don't put my name on it. It's just, yeah. Because a book I can be whatever stuff. you want it to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Do y'all have... So this is something that's that's come up with me. Is I definitely need a more or less kinesthetic aspect of the things that I do. And for so that for me was like the book arts and like bookmaking fits that need for me is that it's for me it's the it's the the corresponding kinesthetic activity to writing because mm -hmm. for me writing is primarily internal and the only I don't have to be skilled enough that I can read my handwriting after I, I handwrite a poem um, but I also and I don't know if this is the case for y'all so I mm -hmm. guess this is a, there's a question somewhere in here that um, I really appreciate the like the finality of making a book that there's this thing that you're done and it's like it's this thing now whereas with like writing um especially on the computer there's always a sense of like oh i could change it's like it's so easy to change and so like effortless to to revise and to edit and to move things around that there's never really a concrete like a sense of finality with with it whereas for me with bookmaking it's like you get that it's like it's mm -hmm. done like worth like the cabinet shelf that i work at it's like there's all these like I mean, you can go back and edit it, like my cap the cabinets that we make after the fact. But once they're created and they're like wrapped up, it's like they're they're done, and you just you know you move on mm -hmm. to the next thing. 
I mean, I think we're used to thinking of books as the last stop for writing. And I, so I think that that's part of it is it doesn't feel like it's, I mean, or now maybe even more so just being published is the last stop. And so published doesn't necessarily happen in your, you know, your, your drive on your computer, your, right. your mm-hmm. Word doc, right? It's, it's when it goes off to a website or literary journal or a, mm-hmm. you know, or a book. And I, so I, I definitely, I can understand that feeling, I think. It's interesting, though, because just as much as I would say this about my writing, published or not, I feel that, yes, that's true, that it's done when it's a book, and I do have a moment where I'm like, yep, this is finished. If I set it down and walk away and come back to it three years later, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jenny mentioned this earlier. It's that sense of who you were in that moment and where mm-hmm. you were in your craft or your art at that moment. And so you might look back at it, and if you can reflect on and appreciate it for their representation of who you were then. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm also like, I look at my thesis book now, and I'm like, oh, man, I would redo it in this way and that way and this way, and I would build yeah. it this way. And But also, I've, I've looked at my thesis book, which was uh, – poetry and I have found things that I didn't find a home for elsewhere and I have taken them apart later and turned them into something else right yeah because they're mine and because that was a long time ago and a lot has changed in my life and and that because I can speaking to like Meredith like the the like if you can appreciate it for the time like it being done at the time that it was done um, I have a collection of, I think it's Louise Gluck's. Um, her first three collections were like republished as a, as a set. Um, and then in, in the introduction, she was like, I have not touched these poems because I could go back and edit them, but I would be editing them from where I am mm-hmm. now, not the person that I was at the time that they were written. So I'd rather have them, even though there are things that I would definitely change about them, I'd rather have these things as just kind of like they exist as testaments to who I was and where I was at the time that they were, that they, that they came out and were published. Cause that's, you know, like that feels authentic and true to myself like then, which is something that I never really thought so much about. Cause I, I definitely, when I write, even on like the computer, there's a definite sense of like, okay, this is like done. Like, you know, it's like there's there's a sense of finality. And I think for me it might be a coping mechanism because if I knew that the things that I had written weren't done, then I would never move on to writing, like, yeah. other, <laughs> other stuff. Yeah, no, that's important yeah. for, for moving on. And yeah. If you spend a whole, if you spend years on a book, like one of mine, it was actually really, uh, I had felt a great sense of relief when I placed my horseshoe crab book with Goucher mm-hmm. um, because I, you know, over the course of the last 15 years, I have quite a few things in my house and I need, <laughs> I need to get rid of things in right. order to make room for new things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the same with writing just as much. Um, and it's nice that that's in a, in a space that it's like, it, it can exist. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think there's also a layer of like, I think you can intentionally spend years on a project mm-hmm. as you work it toward its fullest end but I also think you can obsessively focus on things that don't deserve it right yes so if you don't stop at some point you may be devoting effort to something that doesn't deserve it anymore yeah um and you know I I mean I could probably go dig up a poem I wrote when I was 19 but (laughs) but should I and if I did like right right. you could make lots of arguments for why I should or shouldn't but Mm -hmm. I think it's just about respecting what you need to do as an artist and where you are and in sort of your life and recognizing when it's time to keep working on something and when it's time to be done. Exactly. On that note, 
Um, we are very close to the two-hour mark. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I know, because we're so fascinating, <laughs> and we have so much to say. So I appreciate <laughs> you all like, giving the time to, to talk to me. And I have um, one last question. Um, is there anything that either of y'all would like to ask me to like on any subject, whatever? Just is there anything that you've always wanted to know, or hmm. like a riddle that you have that you've been unable to solve? Yeah. See, you asked that in such a way that I can like I ask you to do something on for me. <laughs> like you, it didn't just have to be a question; it could be a request. No. Could you get Meredith some coffee? No. <laughs> I mean, we have like a curry key. No, 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 I would like for you to write me a three-note song. A three-note song. That's nice. I was going to say, what material would you use that you haven't used yet that you're maybe a little scared of? Ooh. Um, yes, real questions. Yes. So on the... <laughs> I was a journalist. On the, the three-note song, yes, I could. And I will... Um, and I will, I will make, I guess, make that as an addendum to this. There you go. Um, so You're all it, welcome. Um, do you want just, like... The whole world to exist within those three notes? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, Nothing difficult. Okay. Um, as far as material, um... I would really like to get... Um, I would like to utilize um, paint, mm. and I'm I've I dabbled. What kind of paint? Oil paint? Any I paint? I don't know. Probably. I could see you going watercolor. I've tried watercolor before, and I'm I'm not good at it. Um, watercolor for me is like tea that doesn't have a whole lot of flavor. It's like I, I want <sighs> something that has more like substance. Although I've I've seen. <laughs> I know that you can do amazing things with watercolor. Mm -hmm. It's just I feel like I would have to dedicate a significant amount of time sure. to develop those skills. Yes, yes. Um, I have a bunch of acrylic paint that I've used in for different like projects, but um, I would like to explore maybe. So it's, I guess maybe not necessarily like a material, but like the more more visual aspects to mm -hmm. to my books. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually met at Bookfest, a MICA student who does, um, I think she's a book arts concentrator, excuse me, um, but she does, um, she, she gave me the, her website, um, and she does, uh, like, she'll take us, like, maybe the corner, like, where the door hits mm -hmm. on the corner, and then blow that up to, like, an, a level of abstraction. Love it. Um, and deals with like stillness and like the contemplation and the meditation of these of these little things that kind of make up our days that you wouldn't necessarily notice. So I would love to, to work with her and do a or like artists, you know, like collaboration with artists to do, um, you know, like a more integrated, like a fully integrated book of visuals and content, or like and then crastic piece. Yeah. Yeah. So that so, could be cool. The, when Jenny said that she was the, the editor of an online magazine, she does okay. The Light Acrastic, um, which is an awesome, awesome idea of pairing artists and writers together with each other to create new things. Great. Um, so I actually I'll put that on my list of things. To, it's, uh, I can spell it, the word, 
but I cannot, it's very difficult for me to pronounce the ekphrastic. I know, sometimes I wonder why did I name it that, <laughs> but I also, I'm glad I named it that because the people who really want to be there will be there. Yeah. And it's also taught, I think, a lot of people in Baltimore the word ekphrasis. Mm-hmm. So it, you know. Which is a, it's Greek, right? It, and I mean, it it's like in, in response it, Basically, to, yeah, yeah, basically. Um, it's not necessarily a, a direct apple-to-apple response. Right. You're, but, you know, if I give you a poem, you might think about it for a while and, and just see where it leads you visually. Mm-hmm. Or some some level or of, of, interpre- yeah. of influence and interpretation. Exactly. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt that when, um, at BookFest, um, when people came up to the, like, the, I was sharing a table with Mason Jar Press, and, like, that's easy to, to see and easy to pronounce, and then <laughs> Akinoga's hanging out there, and then people were like, how, what is, how do you, I'm like, I'm regretting naming my press this all of a sudden because <laughs> it's not, and I don't, I don't even know. So I, I don't know if I've told people this, but I, I went to Google Translate and typed in autumn moth and translated it to Japanese uh-huh. and Aki no ga spaced out. So it's Aki no ga is what came up. So I just kind of mushed them together into a, an actual, into a single word. Um, yeah. And so I'm hoping for any Japanese people who, Anybody who speaks Japanese or can understand it, um, if that's actually what autumn moth means in Japanese, please let me know because I don't I don't want to be I don't want to co-opt the language and mm-hmm. like have it be mean something that I did not intend it to Ooh. mean. Um, I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, so yeah, so aside from coming up with a three-note song. Um, you, Best request ever. Do you want it on a particular instrument? No, surprise me. Yeah. Okay. Three notes of surprise. Yeah, and delight and joy. Any? Is there a, any particular three notes that you want? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Later on, I'll probably come up with an incredible question I should have asked you, and I like I'll I'll one. send you a text message when okay. I do. But but in the meantime, I, will, I, I just will. want my three notes. I on. think that's a great question, considering Michael writes a lot of haiku. Mm. I think it's a very, you know, a very close reading of music, and he will approach it the way he does as a poet. I, yeah, I will, I will make an addendum, hopefully soon. <laughs> Actually, I might work, I'm going on a uh, writer's retreat next weekend, so I might, I might work on there it up there. There um, you go. So, I think that that's it. Um, definitely, I need to figure out a better sense of when I need to be done with things and end things as opposed to just because I, I would I'd be happy to just sit here and talk for another like this two seems or three like hours. a two-parter to me I don't know you can do what you want with it Michael and I don't have concise conversations ever. that's okay no but that's especially okay. not when book arts is involved no mm-hmm. um so I think that that's it for episode three um as is customary I try to get my guests to come up with a sign off so any way that y'all want to send us off we say in bookiness yeah Ooh. okay yeah yeah Join the slow book movement <laughs> in bookiness. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, I will be back in, probably next month with another solo thing where I just talk about stuff. I don't know what it will be yet. But, um, yeah, this is, these, this is the second episode for October. Uh, thank you all for listening and in bookiness. Woo-hoo. High five.